About 10 years ago, I read a book um, by a great theologian by the name of Chuck Klosterman. I don't know how many read Chuck Klosterman. I'm being entirely facetious when I call him uh, a theologian. He, he, he's a cultural savant. He writes for Esquire magazine, GQ, Washington Post. Um, he's just a prolific writer. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, I heard he was at Book People, so I just had to go hear him. And in this hour-long impromptu, people just firing away questions from the whole gamut of culture. And he was just up with it and current. I'm like, I can't keep up with this guy. But he wrote this book, and he's, he's written quite a few books, um, uh, Eating the Dinosaur, uh, Sex, uh, uh, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Uh, but the book that I wanted to quote tonight is a book entitled Killing Yourself to Live, in which he looks at 50 deaths of famous and not so famous rock stars who have died prematurely, uh, that some accident happened. There is a wasp flying around. So has this been buzzing you too? Um, okay, I will go into freakout mode anyway, but it's, it's with the poinsettias now. So, um, and, and here's what he does. For, he takes a three-week journey. He does a rental car, and he wants to visit 50 sites where rock stars have died. I mean, so he's going to like that, what's that little club in Rhode Island that all caught on fire and it was a tragedy, but all these people that I, I can't think of the name of the band, but he, then he goes to this random place in the deep south where Leonard Skinner had died. And, you know, he's just touring from the northeast all the way and ends in Seattle where Kurt Cobain died. So, and, and here's his question is, um, what is it in our view of life that has made these people so much more famous in dying. Now, some of them had a lot of name recognition when they were alive, but somehow their mortality. In dying, they became not only more talented, but more romanticized or more famous. And, and so people give them a lot more credit for being maybe, in his opinion, a, a more mediocre musician. So he begins this journey. Well, you can imagine, uh, and, and he says like something on the cover, it's like 91% of this book is true uh, because he just tells on himself all the whole, the whole way through. Uh, and, and as he's taking this journey, this soul-searching journey, uh, and visiting these places, he's really inconclusive about each of the sites other than death is simply means that they died. Everything else is just a human construct. It's what we make of them after they die. So it's like, it took three weeks of your life to, to come to that conclusion. And then the, what, what makes the story quite interesting is that he's got this parallel story, which is kind of the real story of the writing. And it's his own sort of mortality in his own romance life. He can't seem to pull it together to maintain a working dating relationship. And so he talks about all of these women. And as he's coming into these cities, he's starting to reminisce over an old girlfriend here or someone he knew here. And, and, he's, and he's trying to reconnect. And, and, and towards the end of the book, he makes this sort of exasperated claim uh, when a friend who he's telling about this story says, oh, please don't write about the women. Please don't write about the women. It, it, don't make this, this book about the women. The, the book was really about the women. Uh, it was all about his relational shortcomings. But he said, he said, I can't let go of the past. I can only live in the past and live in the future. And I thought, 
what a fascinating commentary on, I think, all of our lives, especially when it comes to the matter of faith. Think about it. We're at a time where we love to revisit some of the old songs and all the old Christmas story that we break out like an old history book and we get to read about Mary and Joseph again. We get to read about the shepherds and the magi again. And we get to read about what, what Herod did and what, what they did in like it's actually a static lesson. So we, we're sort of stuck in the past. And then we come into Advent and we just go, oh, someday it'll get better or Jesus will return. But either way, we've got this hope. And just like Chuck Klosterman, I think, is saying, I can't live in the present. Does that in any way resonate? What do we do with a living faith here and now? What do we do with a faith here today? And I think God's word is speaking to today more than it was yesterday, more than it was tomorrow. It's speaking here and now. And the story that is the Christmas narrative has much more vibrancy. But so much of the time when we read that story, we read it like a history account. Oh, that's Mary's story. She did the virgin birth pretty neat. Let's, let's read it again. Except that maybe Mary, like I talked about a couple weeks ago, is a prototype for what our faith is supposed to look like, that we are supposed to have Christ in us, right? So tonight I want to talk about John, John the Baptist, not John who wrote the book of John, John the Baptist, because he was the sort of forerunner of Christ, the one who was supposed to go and prepare the way. And I think, I think one of the most dynamic ways to read the scripture is to realize that John's story is also our story. That John isn't just some historical guy who lived out eating like locusts and, and wearing camel hair, itchy clothing. It was not this freak show outside of Jerusalem that everyone in the establishment had to go visit. It was something much more relatable than that. John's story is actually our story. So maybe the relevant question is, is if John is the forerunner for Christ, the one who would prepare the way for the risen Christ, the Messiah, what is our role? How do we then prepare the way like John did? John as a prototype for preparing the way. And so uh, this is what I want to spend some time looking about simply by, by thinking, okay, how, how do we live in the present and wait for Christ's return? I would simply say, welcome to Advent. Advent literally means, it comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. But that doesn't mean there's something that we can't do here and now. Waiting has a connotation that feels really passive. And I would suggest that in waiting for Christ's return, in waiting for the restoration of all things, believing that this world, even though God created it, is not the world that God intended, there are things that you and I can do to live in with a very active faith, or maybe this way, an active hopefulness. So in John, uh, John's account, uh, I, I just want to make a couple of observations. John is a prototype, first of all, for turning. Now, if you have a bulletin tonight, I just want to encourage you to jot some notes because this might be something that you might want to revisit during the week. It might be something that you want to discuss uh, at the dinner table. Maybe bring up uh, just, just to have some thoughts with you about this Christmas idea so we don't just get so locked in tradition like we're just revisiting a, a historical account. But this is a living faith. And John becomes for us this prototype 
of turning. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, we heard this read earlier by the Bosworth family. It says this, In the days of John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. This is he who uh, was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Is that John's calling? Or is that our calling? To which I would say, yes. Yes, it is. How do we make straight the paths? Well, John becomes a prototype for turning because he talks about repent for the kingdom of God is near. And if you've listened to me talk about the idea of repentance, you understand that the idea of repentance is not supposed to be a reminder of your shortcomings, your inadequacies, your woefulness, your shame, your regret. The idea of repentance is simply God's invitation to turn, believing that acceptance is already settled. God invites us as this beautiful reminder to return to him. Now, sometimes repentance means we're turning away from a certain sin, a certain behavior, a certain attitude, a certain motive. And God interrupts us and says, that's not your calling. If I live in you, I've called you to something better, something more whole, something more generous, something more compassionate, something more hospitable than that. Other times, he calls us to turn toward, where we turn toward something that feels inconvenient, maybe even sacrificial, maybe even irrational. But the spirit of the living God wants to capture our whole hearts and gather this narrative that says, make straight the paths. Let your light shine. If I live in you, be the light of the world. And so he creates this new narrative. And it says that he lived in the desert. One of the things we looked at a couple of weeks ago was the prototype of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a prototype for someone who just shelters the marginalized. Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mother. And yet, while pregnant, it says that she was advanced in years. She hadn't been able to have kids. And so they're older, past a childbearing age. Her husband, Zechariah, was a priest, so they have this good social standing. They're good with all of the people in the temple courts. And yet God calls her to be this sort of prototype for radical hospitality. Because there is a pregnant teenager on the run. There is someone who's marginalized and she's like, yeah, I'm pregnant too. Come with me. So now we have this story where they probably died uh, you know, by the time he's 30, Jesus is 30, um, he's been kind of out in the wilderness. I don't think he's a very socially sophisticated guy. <laughs> I, th I, I think he's kind of the freak show. He's, he's wearing camel hair, which I don't think was fashionably cool. Uh, that's why they noticed that he's got a leather, you know, strap around his waist. He's eating honey and locusts, and everyone's going... It would be like all the Jewish hipsters going, have you heard about this guy out by the Jordan River? He's baptizing people and he's saying something different than everyone else is. And, and everyone's like, I'm sure there was like all these boutiques that were starting to sell like, you know, honey and locusts after that. I'm being really facetious, but nevertheless, back to the, something more biblical. 
Um, but he's inviting people to turn, to make straight the paths. And so when it says that the kingdom of God is near, it's really important for us to hear what it's actually saying, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now. It's not there and then, like, oh, heaven when you die. It's we, as citizens of heaven, who have Christ in us, can actually be responsible for bringing heaven to earth. And this is what John gives us, the prototype for turning. If life feels like it's without hope, try turning. Turning toward, turning away. But the idea is that God gives us a mechanism to recalibrate our senses, to not be so succumbed by pop cultural norm and say, no, no, we can live different and make straight the paths for him. The second thing is he's a prototype for pointing people to Christ. And if you drop down and read a couple of verses later in Matthew chapter 3, he says, but when he saw all of these people coming, these good Jewish folk, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the good church folks were coming out to him, baptizing them, and he says, oh, you're a bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers, which is okay, Clearly, he's validating the whole socially awkwardness, like, welcome. No, he's like, you're a bunch of snakes. And they're like, what did we do? And he's like, stop thinking that you're better than you really are. Stop thinking that God judges you because of your heritage, because of your culture, because of your church attendance, because of how you look, or because of your cultural acceptance. And they're like, what did we do? And he's mad because, simply, there's needs among them that are going unmet. What, what do you mean needs? I mean, like, I need my kids to turn out. I need my kids to get a good education. I need my kids to have good manners. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about there's people that are hungry, that are living in your city. I'm talking about there's people that are not fully clothed in your city. I'm talking about there's lame. I'm talking about there's crippled. I'm talking about that there's immigrants. I'm talking about these people that you are turning a blind eye toward. And so what he does is he becomes not only a prototype for turning, he becomes a prototype for pointing people to Christ by pointing people to the ones on the margins. Oh man, now you're getting like, now you're starting to meddle, right? Because that feels like this is no longer a history lesson. This feels like an active living faith. We're not just going to church. We're actually incorporating faith into all of what we do. And, and John becomes this radical teacher for this. John's life is simply not his own. He is bearing the light of Christ. Because what is belief without an action. What is belief without a response? Oh, I believe that God is light. I believe that God is love. Except if my life doesn't bear that love or that light. What is a priority without a commitment? It means I get, keep getting fatter because I can't stay on my diet. It's just not a priority, right? I mean, I mean that's, that's really, if it's, a, if it's a priority, you know, we, we, uh, we, we make the commitment to it. And so uh, John is teaching his disciples that Christ is coming. And he points people to Christ by pointing them to the needs among them. And what he's saying is, be light in a dark world. And so he asks the question, is your faith simply your heritage? Is this simply because of how you were raised? Is your faith simply your cultural orientation? Is your faith simply your church attendance? 
and he's pushing for more. Some of you have met and even heard me talk about my friend, Troy, who uh, a few years ago uh, started uh, working. He, he ended up in Cairo, Egypt. He went to Cairo because he wanted to simply go and be light in a dark place. He didn't go with a missions agency, although he had said yes to Christ. He went on his own dime, and he got a job working for Halliburton because he had a degree from Texas A&M in electrical engineering. And he was discipling a couple of nationals, and he was starting a couple of home Bible studies, not unlike our tribes. And he was trying to build a network of home churches in what is largely a corrupt and inhospitable place uh, for, for anyone not Muslim. And all he wanted to do was simply be light. And and as he was there, people found out about what he was doing. Some jealous missionaries decided to turn him in onto what is the Egyptian equivalent of the CIA. And so that group, whatever the name of that group is, goes to Halliburton and says, look it, either this guy is CIA or he's a Christian missionary. Either way, we're going to find out. And Halliburton dropped him. And they're like, we're not going to touch this guy. But he said, I didn't feel released. I was still called to be there. And so he, in his dusty little tiled office in Cairo, Egypt, buys an oven. And he begins a bagel business. And I'm like, bagel business in a Muslim country. He's like, I know, it doesn't make sense, but just so you know, bagels are kind of like, they're Jewish by American standards. They have no idea what it is. It's just chewy carbs to them. I'm like, all right. So he starts, because they'd never seen a bagel before. So he opened a storefront and starts selling bagels, but it ended up being in 27 different locations. And it was cafeteria programs, like in hospitals or in schools, and um, it would be in prisons, you know, day-old bagels, and he was just kind of getting it out there. And I meet him probably in 2010. They came back, they were there for nine years until 2009. His children, three kids, never knew that their dad was anything more than an American businessman in Cairo doing a bagel business. I was like, so he says, we never called ourselves missionaries. It probably wasn't even safe to do that, but we just called ourselves Christians. That's the normal Christian life, be light. And so it took me a couple years to figure out the whole of this story because he was not forthcoming about it, even though he was in America. And I'm like, there's no secret service here. You can tell me. I was like, is there money in bagels? Like, I, I, I don't get, you've been back since 09, why do you keep doing this business? Because he goes over twice a year for two weeks at a time. He says, well, it just takes so, it's so corrupt, it's so bureaucratic, you can't get something. So I just go for at least two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall and try to stay up on it. I've got a manager that runs it, I'm building a factory. Oh, I'm like, so is there some ministry angle? He says, no, this is a for-profit solvent company. In fact, we, we, we yeah, we do make money. The, I, I can't pull money out of the country just because of the exchange rate, but yeah, it does okay. But if I'm honest, I've had more stolen than I've ever made from that business. I was like, so why? Why do you keep doing it? And he says, well, I mean, we can get our food into, yes, leper colonies and prisons, and we can do sort of that kind of donated things. But at the end of the day, I get to employ 75 families with a dignified wage and teach them about a different way to do business. I get to be light in what I think is one of the darkest places on earth. 
I remember it was about six months after that and we were meeting every week for coffee and I was just sort of being inspired by him and challenged by him and challenging, you know, just kind of having a, a fun relationship with him. But he says, oh, my manager called me this week and he told me that uh, we lost our biggest contract. It represented a third of our business. I said, so what do you do? He says, well, it's a legitimate, it's not like a faux missionary propped up business. It's actually set up to make money. So we decided no one loses their job. We tighten our belts. And you know, the remarkable thing that happened was that everyone started getting along better and everyone started being more productive. Sunnis, Shiites, Coptic Christians, Orthodox. I mean, across the spectrum of what you can't have, what you can't imagine getting along, he's saying, no, there's, there's a different way to be light in this world. Make straight the paths. Be light in darkness. There is a way to do business different. There's a way to do family different. There's a way to shop different. There's a way to speak different. There is a way to make straight the past. John comes to us not as a historical figure, but as a prototype for what it means to be a Christian. And he calls people, his story is our story, to turning. He also calls people and starts pointing them to Christ and showing them what light looks like. Because maybe we are in ourselves aren't the light, but Christ in us becomes the light of the world. The third thing that we see out of John's story, and this is where I think it becomes very relatable for us, is that John is a prototype for confidence and doubt. Can I just say that again? John is a prototype for both confidence and doubt. And if you are a, a well-meaning, well-intentioned, road-weary follower of Christ, this has to be hope for you. This has to be great encouragement because if your Christian life feels like my Christian life, it often feels like two steps forward and one step back. It feels like adventures and missing the point. But John has this moment, despite how outgoing he is, despite how recklessly abandoned he is, he doesn't mind being socially ostracized. He doesn't mind not having any social standing. He's the freak show in the desert, and yet he has both confidence and doubt. Does this feel like your story? It feels like mine. There are times where I was like, yes, we can charge hell with a water pistol. Yes, we can do this. And then there's times where I'm like, Oh my God, what have I said yes to? I can't do this. And John in Matthew chapter 11 has this moment. Jesus's ministry has come. John's job, while short-lived, has actually happened. He's proclaimed the way of Christ. Christ has taken on his public ministry. He's got his disciples. John has been thrown in prison and now he sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks them the $66,000 question, Hey, you guys, um, I know I used to be pretty radical. I used to get fired up. I used to be, but I've been sitting in jail for a long time and I'm hearing whispers about my execution. Could you guys go and ask Jesus? You know, the one that I said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Go ask Jesus and simply ask him. John said to ask you if you're the one. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Jesus that someone as bold as John has both confidence and doubt. And in Matthew chapter 11, this story unfolds, and he says, when John heard, uh, 
when John heard in prison that Christ was, 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 Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one uh, who was to come, or should we expect someone else? What? Is this John kind of recalibrating a little bit? Because now he recognizes he's done what he's called to do, but it feels like, okay, I just got to pass this mantle on and let Jesus do his thing, and I'm going to fade away into history. And Jesus replies, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, see if this sounds familiar based on something else we've read tonight. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he adds, curiously, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Why would Jesus say that at the end of saying all the things that you're giving testimony to? Blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me? What is he talking about? And, and this is where it gets it, kind of fascinating to me. So John's disciples come to Jesus speaking in, we'll just call it code. And if you were familiar with John's teaching, you would have understood exactly, and Jesus was, what the disciples were asking. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? If they would have come out more explicitly and said, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus wouldn't have been able to answer it directly because he did not want to reveal his true identity at that point. So what he does is he goes back to the Isaiah 61 passage, the prophetic utterance of how you'll know the Messiah has come. We read it earlier tonight, but let me just recapture this for you. And in Isaiah chapter 61, uh, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because what? The Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me uh, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of these things, he goes through six prophetic utterances that the Messiah will give about blind and lame and lepers and deaf and dead and poor. And since he's done all this thing, the message couldn't be more clear. Jesus is the one John should not look for another, except that Jesus also reports back in code speak. And what he does is he leaves out one of the prophetic promises. Can you imagine which one it was? When Jesus says, oh, just testify to everything you've seen and heard, but he leaves out the one about freeing the captives. What he's saying, and this is where it gets really personal, is he's saying to him, I've done all of these things. The message should be clear. Um, but he leaves out that, that little part about freedom from the captives. But blessed is anyone who does not offend or, or falls away, stumble on account of me. Jesus delicately says that even though he's the Messiah, John's not going to be set free from prison. And if you follow the gospel account, he was actually eventually beheaded. I think the message we have, John is a prototype for turning. He represents that well, sometimes turning toward, sometimes turning away. John is a prototype for pointing other people to Christ. Look at, by seeing the needs among them. But John becomes this prototype for both confidence and doubt, and Jesus meets him right where he's at. And what I would simply say, John, Jesus reminds John, and me, 
that despite your present circumstances, greater things are still to come. Despite what you see happening all around the world, it's not the end of the story. Greater things are still to come. Despite how you feel about what's happening in the White House, greater things are still to come. Despite that weird guy with his finger on a button in North Korea, greater things are still to come. Despite the civil war, what's going on in Yemen, greater things are still to come. Despite how your kids are or are not turning out, despite how well you save for retirement or how well you've built your net worth, greater things are still to come. Despite how well-mannered your kids are or how, how sustainable your marriage feels, greater things are still to come. The story is being written still. There's hope for today. There's an ability that he lives and, and, and breathes and moves today, here and now. Yes, it's a beautiful sacred text. Let's read it every year. Let's not forget it's a great faithfulness testimony of God throughout history. Let's look forward to the day where he returns and makes all things right. But let's live today as citizens of heaven, knowing that we have a hope that this is not the end of the story. Greater things are still to come. One of the greatest things we're given is the idea of communion. And he comes and welcomes us to this table. In fact, Theo and Sal, if you're going to join me up here, we want to close our time with communion tonight. Um, and I just want to invite you towards a prayer of examination where you would just consider your own heart. We talked tonight about turning. We talked tonight about the idea of what would it mean for us to be more sensitive to God's presence, more sensitive to God's prompts, his leading. This is what it means to repent. Not to be reminded of our inadequacies, but to be reminded of God's acceptance of us. And that greater things are still to come. We can walk into greater wholeness. We can walk into reconciliation. We can walk through confession into sort of this freedom that comes in being fully known. So Jesus um, lifts up this, this cup and this bread, and he gives us these beautiful symbols for how we repent, for how we turn, turn away from, turn toward, but how we return back to intimacy with him. If you just want to start kind of leading us, we're going to go into a time of worship. It's a time of partaking of the elements. It's a time of singing. It's a time of what I like to think of as spiritual inventory that where we can come with our hearts open, with our minds open, and allow the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us some kind of prompt and direction. He says, as often as you break of this bread, I want you to drink of this cup. This bread represents the brokenness of my body. And you think about the broken parts physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, mentally, we understand brokenness because we live in a broken world. We are native and native speakers to brokenness. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, this is the cup. It represents the new covenant. The idea that you just can't earn your way to me. It is the new covenant. And it's only in drinking in my body and my blood that you can experience the newness to, to be born again in Christ. So we're just gonna line up and go through the line tonight. When you feel like you're ready, 
when you feel like, but I would encourage you as we begin to pray now and we begin to worship and we just go at your leisure. You can have an element and then dip and then return to your seat. Uh, but we're just going to use this as a, in the next kind of few moments to close out our service in, in prayer, communion. God, this is your table and you welcomed all of us to your table. We think it rude to eat in front of friends or strangers. So you welcome us to your table, but will you welcome us into your presence? May your Holy Spirit speak to us and may holiness be our testimony. May light and life and love and truth be our story, even in the midst of the darkness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Speak now, we pray.